Well, Oliver started reading Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, which he's going to be teaching over the coming weeks. And it focuses on God's plan for the church's growth in conformity to the image of Christ. That's our sanctification, right? Our conformity to the image of Christ. And Ephesians 4 answers the question, how does the church grow to be like Christ and fulfill its purpose? And it also gives the answer. It says the pastors and teachers equip the saints for the work of ministry. And in verse 15 of Ephesians 4, that ministry the pastors equip us for is described as speaking the truth in love so that we would grow up in all aspects into Christ is how Paul describes it. There are many spiritual gifts in the church and you all are using your spiritual gifts to serve. Some involve teaching, some involve acts of service. But verse 15 makes something very clear that each of us, every single one of us, is to be involved in interpersonal ministry with one another, discipleship, speaking the truth in love so that we would grow up into Christ. And I think we all understand that and we desire to do that. But isn't it true that sometimes we wrestle to know just what that looks like? How do I help my brother grow during the Spanish-American War, which centered on the islands that Spain uh, possessed, the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, others, Cuba. The U.S. Army had few casualties during that war, less than 500. However, more than 10 times that number died in field hospitals from very minor injuries. And the reason why is that the military didn't have enough trained medics to care for the wounded. So they had to pull regular soldiers off of the field to care for their wounded comrades. And the problem was they had no training how to properly care for a wound. And their fellow soldiers would contract all sorts of diseases, simple diseases to cure or to prevent. And and they would be killed by that instead of by enemy bullets. When it comes to our call to speak the truth and love to one another so that we would grow up into Christ, I think a lot of times we feel like those men pulled off of the battlefield into the hospitals felt like, I want to help. I want to help my, my brother and sister grow, but I don't know how, and I'm going to end up doing more harm than good. When a brother comes to us and pours out his heart about a sin he's battling, Often we just can give him a list of verses and tell him we'll pray for him, but we don't know how else to help him. Or if we see someone sin, we don't seek to lovingly confront them on that sin because we don't know how to help them have victory over it. And yet as Ephesians 4.15 tells us, we're all to be involved in that type of ministry, speaking the truth and love to each other so we would grow up. So what does that reveal to us? It's really simple. Just like those soldiers, we need training. We need to keep growing in our ability to minister to one another, to speak the truth in love as God calls us to. So this morning, our goal is to be trained one more little training session about how it is that we're supposed to minister to each other here at CBC on a personal level. How is it that we carry out our call to discipleship, to speak the truth in love? And we're going to let Paul do the training. You can open to Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. And in these verses, Paul shows us his example of how he carried out his ministry. That we, it's the same ministry that we too are called to carry out. So that we might this morning learn from his example and follow it. So let's look at Colossians 1, verse 28. Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Look at the end of verse 28. What is Paul's goal? He says he is doing this so that he may present every man complete in Christ. 
Paul's goal is our goal, to see our brothers and sisters conformed to the image of Christ. So we're going to learn from Paul as he shows us how we are to seek the growth of our brothers and sisters here at CBC. I think that's something we all want this morning, isn't it? Do you want to see your brothers grow as you serve them with the word? Then you need to look with me at this passage this morning because Paul's a master teacher. He's going to tell us what his ministry is and then he's going to show us. So first we're going to see the pattern for our personal ministry from chapter 1 verses 28 and 29. And then second, we're going to see Paul practice that personal ministry as Paul shows us what this looks like in chapters 2 and 3. Don't worry, we don't have time to go through all of chapters 2 and 3, but it's a helpful example. So first, let's look at the pattern in chapter 1, verse 28. Where does Paul start? He says, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Where does this ministry start? It starts with proclaiming Christ. Proclaim, katangelo, means to make something known, to announce it publicly. What is Paul proclaiming? He says him. In the Greek, this is a relative pronoun, and it's designed to point us back to what Paul has just finished saying in verses 25 through 27. And as we look at those verses, Paul here is explaining his ministry in the church. Verse 25, he was made a minister of the church to preach the word of God. What is that word? Verse 26 tells us the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been made known to the saints. Paul was tasked with revealing the mystery of God's plans to his saints. And in verse 27, Paul tells us the content and purpose of the message he preached to the saints. To make known, here's what he says in verse 27, it is to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery, is how Paul says it. That's Paul's ministry. It's an emphatic statement. All of God's plan for salvation was a mystery that was hidden until Christ's coming. But when Paul says, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery, he is indicating the high point of the mystery. If God's mystery, his plan of salvation is a castle, then this is the treasure room. This is where the gold is at. And it isn't just the glory of the mystery. It is the riches of of the glory. He wants you to know the worth and the value and the supremacy of what he finds at the core of the gospel message. And what does he say it is in verse 27? Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the blazing center of God's incredible plan of salvation for us? It's the indwelling presence of the risen Christ and his people. I hope we see that. And Paul's ministry was to proclaim the glorious truth of the gospel that through faith in Christ, we are united to Christ and he dwells in us. And in union with him, we share in all of his benefits. That's Ephesians 1.3. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. How? In Christ Jesus. In union with him. This is the eternal riches of the glory of God's mystery. It's the red hot core of the gospel that the eternal God, the eternal son of God would take filthy, wretched sinners like you and me into an inseparable union with him and that he would dwell in us. Isn't that amazing? So that we would be reconciled to God in union with Christ for an eternity in glory. So when Paul says, him we proclaim, what he's referring to is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just proclaiming historical facts about Christ. At the heart of Paul's labor to present every man complete in Christ is the proclamation of the reality of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the pattern 
for discipleship. This is at the center of how we help each other grow. All ministry in the church, all sanctification happens through our union with Christ. And as we proclaim that union with Christ to each other. If we want to see each other grow, this is where we start. By proclaiming our union with Christ to one another. Just as Paul proclaimed it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the content of our ministry. Now, if you think here that when he says him we proclaim, Paul is only talking about uh, evangelism. He's not really proclaiming our union with Christ. That's not his focus. I want to put your doubts to rest. Because Paul, Paul spends the next two chapters proclaiming to the Ephesians nothing less than their union with Christ. Just listen to some passages in chapter 2 and 3. In verses 6 through 7, Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. He calls them to walk according to their union with Christ. In verses 9 through 10, he says, In Him you have been made complete. In union with Christ, you have everything you need for your sanctification. Verses 11 through 14, we'll look at more in depth, but the content is our union with Christ in his death and resurrection portrayed in baptism. We'll come back to that. But again, what is Paul preaching? It's our union with Christ. And it continues in chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, seeking the things, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 3, you have died with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are seated with Christ and we are glorified with Christ in heaven. And, and again, chapter 3, verse 11. Our unity as the church is from our union with Christ. There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free man, but Christ is all in in all. Do you think union with Christ is important to Paul? The two chapters we just skimmed over are full of Paul proclaiming union with Christ to the Colossian church. That's at the heart of what Paul proclaims to the Colossians in his ministry, our union with Christ. There are mysteries in science that researchers aren't able to understand. Uh, Like, for example, what mechanism explains the existence of the U equals 5 over 2 state in the fractional quantum Hall effect? Does it describe quasi-particles with non-abelian fractional statistics? Scientists don't understand that, and I don't think we do either. (laughs) But our union with Christ is not some unsearchable mystery of the cosmos. Paul says in Colossians 1, God willed to make known the mystery to his saints, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's made it known to us. Brothers and sisters, our union with Christ is the riches of the glory of God's plan of salvation. Again, that the eternal, infinitely holy God who created the heavens and the earth would dwell in sinful, created man. It's unbelievable. John Murray says that union with Christ is the central truth to the doctrine of salvation, not justification, not regeneration, not election. John MacArthur says, Our union with Christ encompasses every step of salvation. And yet, Arthur Pink tells us we know very little of this union in knowledge and in practice. He says that union with Christ is the most important, the most profound, and the most blessed of any doctrine that is set forth in the sacred scripture, yet there is hardly any that is now more generally Neglected. Isn't that true? We know very little of our union with Christ. But as Paul shows us his pattern for personal ministry, 
at the very center of our ability to grow as Christians, at the center of our labors to help others grow, to be complete in Christ, is the proclamation of the believer's union with Christ. That's where Paul starts. So if we're going to grow, we've got to understand union with Christ, don't we? We're going to look briefly at our union with Christ from a lot of different passages so that we would know what it is, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time seeing how Paul applies union with Christ to our daily living. It's not some ethereal idea, some concept. It is a living reality in the life of the believer, and it is the source of our power for sanctification in the Christian life, Christ in us. When George Whitfield, the great evangelist, was saved. It was as he read a book whose title summarized what it means to be a Christian. It's written by Henry Scougal, published in 1677, and the title is The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And in the book, Scougal says, Christians know by experience that true religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation in the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the, the apostles' phrase, it is Christ formed within us. Being a Christian is nothing less, salvation is nothing less than the life of God in the soul of man. And scripture proves this true. 2 Peter 1.3 describes salvation as our being made partakers of the divine nature. After Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In John 17.21, he asks that his people be united to him, that they may all be one, he says, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 23, I in them, and you and me, that they may be perfected. In unity. This union, God indwelling the believer, is everywhere in the New Testament. The Spirit indwells us, Ephesians 1 3, Romans 8, 9, and 10. If the Spirit is in you, then Christ is in you. 1 Corinthians 6 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the two shall become one flesh, speaking of marriage, but then he says that reality is a picture of of the spiritual reality of the church's union with Christ. And we could keep going on and on, whether we know it or not, at the center of the Christian life is what? It's our union with Christ. That is the riches of the glory of the gospel, Christ in us. And the importance of our union with Christ is most clearly seen and pervasively seen in our union with Christ in his death in resurrection. Look at me with uh, look with me at Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 as we keep seeing what is union with Christ. Colossians 2:11 through 14. Paul tells us that our union with Christ in his death and resurrection are essentials for salvation and, and essential truths in the Christian life. Verse 11 says, "And in him in Christ You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Now, as Paul speaks of our union with Christ, he brings in the concept of circumcision, saying, in Christ, you were circumcised. Paul isn't here talking about physical circumcision that the Jews were subject to. And we know that because he says this is a circumcision made without hands. In other words, it's a spiritual circumcision that Paul refers to. So so what is that? He's referring to our need for a new heart and a new nature. 
When sin entered the world through Adam, it corrupted our nature, making us totally depraved. Not many were as sinful as we could be, but that our sinfulness extends into every part of our being, our head, heart, our mind, our flesh, our wills, our desires. All are corrupted by sins, making us spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin and making us rebels against God. Our nature and our heart are naturally inclined to sin and rebellion against God. For Israel, physical circumcision, was, which was the removal of the flesh, pointed to the spiritual reality for, of their need for God to remove their sinful nature. No external circumcision could remove their sinful heart that rebelled against God. And as long as they had this sinful nature, they were unable to please God, just as it's true for you and I. Because as Jesus says in John 8, whoever sins is a slave to sin. For the Jews, their hearts were always inclined to evil. The same is true for us. They and we both, because of our sin nature, are always at enmity with God. So for the Jews, God called them to circumcise their hearts, to remove this rebellious nature. And of course, that was impossible for Israel. And God's design was that they come to him for this change of heart, for this new nature. So God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, that he was going to do it. It says, moreover, Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. God promised to one day circumcise the hearts, their hearts so that they could obey him and love him. And God confirmed this in Ezekiel 36 when he says he would cleanse them from all their filthiness. And in verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, that sinful, rebellious heart. And I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. It doesn't say the word circumcision in that passage, but it's there. It's the removal of the sinful heart. It's a spiritual cutting out of the sinful nature that God promised. So, how did God finally and fully fulfill that promise to Israel? Colossians 2.11, through Christ. In Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, Here it is, in the removal of the body of the flesh. That's that sinful nature by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision of heart, a heart transplant comes through Christ. It's something that he does with a physical heart transplant, as I understand it. There's four places that they detach the heart uh, from the person's body, and as they Put the new one in. As I understand it, there's six connections then for uh, better flow. But a spiritual heart transplant has to be a lot more drastic because our sin nature doesn't have four connections to us. It is pervasive. It is throughout our being. It pervades every part of our nature. And there's only one way to be rid of this old sinful heart, and that is through death. That old man, that old nature, as Scripture refers to it, must be put to death. And that is exactly what Colossians 2.12 tells us. Christ has done for us in our union with him. Verse 11 says, The removal of the body of flesh happens by the circumcision that Christ performs. A circumcision without hands, which happens, as verse 12 says, as Uh, Verse 12 says, when we are buried with him in baptism. What does that mean? Does that mean when we're baptized, this happens, this spiritual change? No, this is a dry passage. As MacArthur says, there's no water here. It isn't water baptism he speaks of because in the next line, he says, in which baptism you're raised by faith. You're not raised out of the water. It's, It's through faith. 
This baptism isn't getting submerged in water. That's only an outward representation of an inward reality. The inward reality that baptism represents is that you have been submerged into, that is, united with Christ in his death and resurrection by faith. And when God saves a person, they're brought into an inseparable union with Christ. And that produces two results. Your old man, your old sinful nature is put to death and you're raised up to new life in Christ, in union with him. When we believe on in Christ, our old nature is put to death with Christ on the cross. God lays all our sins on Christ, including our sinful nature, and that nature dies. Listen to Romans 6, 6, talking about being baptized into Christ's death. Paul says, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Gone, that old sinful nature out of the way, dead, crucified with Christ. Why? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin, Paul says. For he who has died is freed from sin. 1 Peter 2, 24 says the same thing. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. I've died with Christ. But Christ who lives within me. Now, whether we know this or not, this is what happened when God saved us. Our old sinful nature enslaved to sin was put to death with Christ on the cross. And we're free from slavery to sin to follow God. Isn't that amazing? That is an amazing reality that we see in Scripture. Paul tells the Colossians, you have been circumcised Your old sinful nature and rebellious heart have been cut off through your union with Christ and his death. But again, that's only part of the union, isn't it? The second is our union with Christ in his resurrection. Paul says in verse 12, you are buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And through our union with Christ in his resurrection, by faith, God raises you spiritually and gives you new life. Romans 6, 4 says that we have been buried with him in his death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life, not just in the future in heaven, but here and now. We died so that the old man would be put off and so that God would give us new spiritual life that we needed in order to love him and obey him. And that's the new birth that Jesus describes in John 3. You must be born again. You need new spiritual life. 1 Peter 1.3, God in his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through our union with Christ, we have been raised to new life. We have been given new life. As God promised in Ezekiel 36, our old sinful heart is taken out. We're not slaves to it. And God has put in us a new heart to follow him, to love him, and obey him. Ephesians 4.24 says, This new man is created in the likeness of God, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Colossians 3.10, in this same section, Paul says, We have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This new self is created in the image of God. The new nature that God gives us is our participation in the divine nature. It is Christ in us. It is a new nature that is able to love and obey him And it is currently being transformed into the very image of Christ. Renewed into the image of its creator. And it is all of that by faith in Christ and through our union with him. All of those incredible spiritual realities, and they are spiritual realities. We don't feel all of that on a daily basis, especially when we're battling sin. But Paul says that is what is true of you as a believer. Often we don't think, often we think much about our forgiveness, our justification, our glorification in heaven. 
and, and many other doctrines, but we don't spend much time thinking through and meditating on our union with Christ. And that would be to our own hurt and shame because Paul says Christ in us, our union with him, the fact that Jesus dwells in us is the riches of the glory of the gospel. This is the high point. This is the best part. It's the foundation for our forgiveness, justification, and glorification. And it is also the foundation for our sanctification. It's God's means for us to grow in Christ's likeness. And apart from union with Christ, we will not grow in Christ's likeness. And that's why, as Paul teaches us how to minister to each other, what he has at the center of that ministry is the proclamation, the explanation of our union with Christ. Would you see your brothers and sisters grow in Christ's likeness? Then you must follow this pattern that Paul sets forth. You must start with proclaiming Christ, our union with Christ one another, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the pattern Paul gives for personal ministry and growth in Christ's likeness. But is it enough to simply proclaim the truth? I think we would all say, no, it's not. In 2011, a commentary on Colossians, kind of a commentary, I don't know if I fully call it that, was published. It was titled, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And the premise of the book that was that all we do in sanctification is we just study and understand our union with Christ. And you simply consider those truths and that is enough for you to be complete. But I think the author didn't read Colossians when he wrote the commentary. Because in Colossians, Paul doesn't stop at proclaiming Christ. He goes on to apply Christ to put our union with Christ into practice in our daily lives. The pattern of Paul's ministry was to proclaim our union with Christ and then to put it into practice by applying that union with Christ. And you might be asking right now, how does union with Christ help me to minister to my brother and sister and seek their growth? Well, Paul is going to show us, this is our second point, the practice of Paul's ministry to apply our union with Christ to daily living. Look at verse 129. Uh, Colossians, we're in Colossians. We've jumped around to a lot of passages. But we're going to park here in Colossians. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 28, excuse me. Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It doesn't stop with proclamation. He goes on to admonish and teach. There are two participles that show How does it look like when Paul proclaims Christ? The word admonish in the Greek is nuthetetlo. It means to counsel about the avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. It has the idea of warning in order to produce a change in conduct. Teach, the Greek didasko, means to instruct towards a desired end. And it is with all wisdom, which requires knowing how to apply what is taught. And both words describe a call to action. So Paul seeks the growth of the church, not just by proclaiming information about Christ and union with Christ, but by showing us how do we apply these deep spiritual truths in our daily lives. And he does it by teaching with wisdom and admonishing those who don't live according to these realities of our union with Christ. Paul says, in order to present every man complete in Christ, you must teach them about their union with Christ, to apply, to practice that truth in their life. Why? Because our union with Christ is designed to produce a result, isn't it? Again, Romans 6, we have died to sin in union with Christ. How can we live in it any longer? There's an implied change. It's explicit, actually. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that dying to sin, we might live to Christ. It's change. 
Union with Christ results in new life that makes us walk in newness of life. Again, Romans 6. Our union with Christ produces a result in our lives as we apply it daily. Paul strove to present every man complete in Christ by proclaiming their union with Christ to them, but then by helping them to apply that to your life. So don't you wish we could see Paul at work doing this? What does this look like? Well, go home after church and read chapters 2 and 3. We don't have time to walk through them, but what those chapters are is Paul applying this reality of our union with Christ. If we had a few more hours, we might get through some of it, but I just want us to look at some of the ways that Paul shows us what does this look like in our personal ministry? How do we apply union with Christ in discipleship? Paul reminds First of all, this church of their union with Christ, we already have seen in verses 9 through 10, he reminds them that they're complete in Christ. They have everything they need for their sanctification, for everything in the Christian life. In chapter 2, verse, sorry, we're in chapter 2, 9 and 10, now 11 and 14. Like we've seen, he reminds them that they've died to sin in union with Christ. And now they've been raised to new life and sin no longer has dominion over them. But then Paul begins to admonish and teach them to correct where they've stepped out of line with their union with Christ. And among other problems in the Colossian church, we see in verse 20 that the Colossians were being led astray by false teachers who said that in order to be truly holy, in order to be a really godly person, you need to follow a set of laws and restrictions like verse 21 shows, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Or in verse 16, he mentions participation in religious celebrations. That's the stuff you need to be holy and really godly, really spiritual. But Paul highlights the error that human wisdom leads us into. It's the problem of trying to produce our own holiness by using man-made strategies to defeat our sin and to be more like Christ. And we in the church can be tempted to that as well, to fight sin according to human wisdom. Some of these things are helpful, but there's still human wisdom to battle lust, get rid of the phone, don't go to the beach. If you're battling anger and bitterness, just avoid the person, count to 100, take deep breaths, go to the beach and de-stress. They're just human ideas of how you can deal with the problem. But Paul says in verse 23, look at, look at verse 23 with me. These are matters, these principles are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. They, they look like they should work. They look like they should make you a more godly person. But look at what Paul says at the end of verse 23. They are of no value, no worth against fleshly indulgence. In the battle against sin, human wisdom has no value against the power of our sinful heart. Man-made legalism looks good. If we follow this five-step plan, we won't be anxious. And if we're really trying to kill our sin, some of these uh, pathways to success sound pretty good when we're in the fight. But Paul says in verse 23, they have no value against fleshly indulgence. Why? Because they don't have spiritual power to change the heart. Jesus says in John 6, 63, the flesh profits nothing. Fleshly ideas can't give you power over the flesh. And so Paul admonishes them. Here's the, here's the practical application. Here's how he applies union with Christ. He admonishes them in verse 20. If you have died with Christ, if you've been united with Christ in his death, if your old sinful nature has died and you've been raised to new life in Christ and made a, part a partaker of the divine nature, then why are you trying to be made Christ-like by looking at human principles for your Christ-likeness that have no power over sin? They don't have as the source your union with Christ, the power of the indwelling Christ within you who enables your sanctification. This error is 
easy to commit in our own discipleship where we seek to help someone change external behavior, but we do it without remembering that all of our power for true growth in Christ's likeness comes through our vital union with the Lord Jesus. And we tend to direct people to human wisdom that's external legalism instead of reminding them that in Christ they have died to sin. They're not slaves of sin, and they are free to obey him. So Paul admonishes them. He corrects their thinking to align their thinking with the reality of their union with Christ. But then again, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the next verses, after admonishing them, he begins to teach them. And look what he directs them to, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that's union with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. You are seated there with him, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died in Christ, union with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, union with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, that's union with Christ, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's union with Christ. Again, is union with Christ important in Paul's teaching about how we grow spiritually to be more like Christ? Yes, it is. Human-made strategies fail to have power against the flesh. Paul directs them to what? Their union with Christ. He says, fix your minds on Christ. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And one day soon you will be with Christ and you will be made like him. As 1 John 3, 2 says, because when you see him, you will be like him because you'll see him as he is. And he calls them to consider the source of your power. The one who is indwelling you is also at the same time seated at the right hand of God, ruling over all of the universe. And at this very moment, he is indwelling you, ready to give you everything you need in your battle against sin. You're sufficient in Christ. But not only that, he reminds them that they're dead in union with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Verse 8. But now also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Paul Paul applies union with Christ by telling them, you need to remember and meditate daily on the fact that your old sinful nature that you were enslaved to has died in union with Christ, was nailed to the cross with him. You're no longer a slave to sin. You are free to obey Christ. And so you must, you must battle to put off sin. Romans 6, 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? In in the battle against sin, we don't erect barriers of human wisdom and strategies to keep our brothers from sin. We remind them that the sin of lust or the sin of anger or the sin of envy, the envy that belongs to the old nature was crucified with Christ. We have died to that nature and we are free to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12 in chapter 3. Paul says that we are in this new life we've been raised up to, being partakers of the divine nature, being renewed into his image. Verse 12 says we are to put on a heart. Uh, This is heart level change. A heart of compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience, forgiving one another, just as God has forgiven us. We're able to put that new heart on because in union with Christ, we have received a new nature. And we're able to love and follow God and reflect Christ. And that nature, again, verse 10, is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In union with Christ, we are being transformed into Christ's image. 
So as Romans 13, 14 says, we are to make no provision for the flesh, but we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's likeness. Paul's showing us, and, and I know there's a lot here. <clears throat> there really is. This is a lot for us to take in and apply. But Paul is showing us how to apply our union with Christ to our daily battle against sin. He applies it by proclaiming our union with Christ and by admonishing and by teaching those under his spiritual care. This is the pattern for ministry. This is how we minister to one another. Brother, is your life right now, is this sin issue out of line with the new nature that God has given you, that Christ has given you in union with him? Then you need to turn and repent and remember you've died to sin. God's given you a new nature and you are being conformed into the image of Christ. This is the pattern for ministry. You have to proclaim and apply our union with Christ. And if we don't take these truths to finally apply them, then we'll have no spiritual power to grow in Christ's likeness. There's no sanctification apart from Christ, is there? Anything else is just external. It's behavioral modification. We must apply and live in the light of this union with Christ where we will actually end up less Christ-like. And that's what happened to the author of that commentary who didn't apply our union with Christ. Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Chavigian, he thought that only understanding our union with Christ was enough. And he didn't think we needed to apply it. And soon after, he was caught in a series of adulterous relationships because he understood union, but he didn't apply it. Paul knows we must apply, and he sets the example for us. You must proclaim union with Christ, and you must apply it in your life and in the lives of those around you by admonishing when they're out of line with union with Christ and teaching them how to walk in line with their new nature. That's the pattern for personal ministry. There's a lot there. So I just want to ask, do your conversations at church reflect that pattern that Paul set forth? Is that the content of your ministry to one another as you seek to help each other grow? Are you focused on proclaiming the riches of the glory of the gospel, our union with Christ to one another? This is hard work, isn't it? It's hard work to study with diligence to understand that. We need to keep being equipped by the elders, by the teachers in the church. We need to meditate on these things daily so that we remember it. We're so quick to forget. It's hard work. And that's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. It's hard work, but we do it knowing that Christ dwells in us and we do it in dependence on him. This is the only way the church will grow as we all speak these truths and love to one another. So I want us to end by helping us see that this isn't for Oliver or the other leaders or your Bible study leader. This is for every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in this room to minister to one another in these ways. Because Paul takes the same Words We proclaim him, we admonish every man, and we teach every man with all wisdom. And he applies them to the church in chapter 3, verse 16. Go to that verse with me. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's that proclamation of Christ. Let that dwell among you. Let it be the product and the, and the content of your conversation. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Don't you see what Paul says is his pattern? He's calling the whole church to do the same type of ministry. This is a command from the Lord. And if we see, if we want to see our brothers and sisters grow in Christ, this is what we need to be about here at Community Bible Church. There is... In the evangelical church culture, this, this kind of ministry to one another is rare. And on the rise is the idea that what you need most is community and fellowship and to feel loved. And those are all good things, and uh, community and fellowship and love are important, but community is what we need spiritually when it centers 
on our remembrance of our union to each other in Christ and our communion together with him. Otherwise, it's just hanging out. And fellowship is vital as long as that fellowship revolves around our fellowship with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and our union with him that gives us fellowship with one another where we seek to put off sin and to be more like our, our master and Lord Jesus Christ. And the greatest spiritual truth is love. Spiritual fruit is love. But the love we need isn't warm fuzzies in a safe place, right? It is to have our brothers and sisters speak the truth and love to us regarding our union with Christ and how that means we need to die daily to sin so that we would have the joy of being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. It's the love that bears our burdens by coming alongside us in sickness and trial and reminding us of Christ's indwelling presence and his total sufficiency for us no matter what trial we find ourselves in. That's true community. That's fellowship. That's love. And that's true discipleship. And that's how the church grows. Paul's given us that pattern. We are to proclaim our union with Christ, as Ephesians 4.13 says, until the whole church, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness which belongs to Christ. That's maturity. So let's mature in our ministry to one another and proclaim the riches of the glory of the gospel. Not anything peripheral the center, the blazing center of the gospel. So by God's power and trained by his word and with the spirit of Christ within us, let's today let the word of Christ dwell among us richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's pray and then we will sing. Lord, there's just so much here in your word for us to understand and grow in, and yet we see it's absolutely essential. And we just ask, Christ, that you would help us to understand our union with you, to grow in our love for you, in our understanding that you are at work within us, and to see your power at work within us as we minister to others. That's not too little to ask, or too much to ask. It's too little to ask. You delight to work in us for the growth of your body. So do that today, Lord, and help your word to stay in our hearts, to have its place there, and let us be changed in how we minister to one another, how we proclaim Christ to one another, and let us be changed ourselves into more and more reflecting the fact that we have Christ dwelling in us. Thank you, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.